But uh, again, I have to say that to me, it's a joy to have had a part in the missions conference. I love missions. I love missionaries. Since I am one of them, I've been a missionary since 19, uh, uh, 1991 when we went to the mission field. And uh, I just have I've been so excited about how I could participate in this missions conference. And then, of course, my heart in teaching the Word of God is the prophetic Word of God. And putting the two together has been a real joy as far as I'm concerned. So I'm grateful to you. Thank you, Pastor, for inviting me to come and be with you. We focused in these days together on two of the New Testament missionaries. Now, there are a number of them. Silas, Barnabas, Philip, Timothy, Titus, all of these men would have been involved in the mission projects, either on their own or partnering with either Peter or Paul. And it's if you want to know how missions should operate, you go to the book of Acts. We have done that several times in our study thus far. And I want to go back and rehearse what we talked about Uh, the second day when we were thinking about the Apostle Paul. In the morning service, I'll look at Peter and his involvement in missions. But in this service, I want to look at the Apostle Paul. So go to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, 19th chapter of the book of Acts. It's the action book. It's the book that is filled with the information that we need to know about missions. And so much of what's in this book helps us to know how we should be involved in missions. Let me remind you, the 19th chapter of the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul on one of his missionary journeys, and he goes to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is in the southwestern shoreline of what we know as modern-day Turkey. At that time, it was Asia Minor. Today, it would be a city called Kusadasi. And at the time when Paul went into Ephesus, it was one of the leading cities as it relates to the world at that time. In fact, it was the second most influential city, second only to the city of Rome. And they were both, of course, located in the Roman Empire. And so the Apostle Paul went into Ephesus with the purpose of doing mission work. Now, was, as was his custom, and one of the things that he was involved in uh, doing was to go into a synagogue. The synagogue system had been set up, and now he was going to go into the synagogue using this as a launch pad to start to talk about uh, the person of Jesus Christ and the way and trying to communicate the gospel message to these people that were living in Asia Minor. It was always interesting. Paul would go into a town. If you'll study the mission work of the Apostle Paul, he would go into a town, go to the synagogue. He would use that opportunity to start talking to Jewish people. And then if he had a place to stay at night, it would be the city jail. And so he would check into the synagogue and make sure he had reservations at the city jail. That's ultimately where he would end up staying. I come in, I check into a motel, he would check into jail. And it was, and in fact, even in the jails, he would use that as an opportunity uh, to win people to Jesus Christ as well as he was spreading the gospel message. Well, he comes into Ephesus, he goes into the synagogue, he's there for three months. He reasons with the Jewish people about the kingdom of God. Now, he wasn't teaching and preaching that the kingdom of God was to be set up at that point in time. What he was doing was he was using a neutral situation, a starting point to start communicating what he wanted to pass along to the Jewish people, and it was the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus had offered the kingdom, but the offer of the kingdom had been postponed. It would be promised and it's going to come for the Jewish people, but it was not going to come at that particular time. And so he spends three months in the synagogue. Uh, Because of some of the people in the synagogue, they get really upset what he's teaching uh, because they think it's contradictory to what the Bible is saying. 
uh, they get upset about it. And, you know, Paul's going to have a real conflict in the city of Ephesus anyway. Uh, that was the city where they worshiped Diana, the multi-breasted god, uh, which had a connection all the way back to the mother-son cult in Babylon, which was established by Nimrod 4,500 years ago, about uh, 2,500 years before the time of the church there in Ephesus. So because of the fact that some in the synagogue get upset, he goes to the school of Tyrannus, and he's going to spend two years in that school teaching those who he led to the Lord in Ephesus, those who maybe had heard the way, because this is not the first time somebody had been given the gospel. Remember, Apollos had already come there and was also teaching the gospel as well. Look at verse 10 with me. In the context that I've just given you now and laying out the scenario that was unfolding, verse 10 says this, but this continued by the space of two years in the school of Tyrannus, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now this is Asia Minor we're talking about. This is modern day Turkey. Anyway, the, the, the truth be known that during this two week, I mean two year period of time, the apostle Paul recognized that he had a responsibility. The Lord had commanded them to go to a whole world uh, to teach the gospel, to start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's exactly what the uh, men that had heard that command and responsibility for them was to do. They are doing that. And so Paul teaching these in the two years that have come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is going to challenge them to reach all of Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor, if you can imagine modern-day Turkey, that's what we're talking about. And so Asia Minor is going to be Asia Minor is going to be uh, the location that they're going to reach out. Now, do you notice what the text said? They reached out to every single person, every person in Asia Minor. What that means is not every one of them got saved. But everyone was given the gospel message. You see, that's all we can do. We can't make anybody get saved, but we can give the gospel message. And so that's exactly what these people were doing from the church there in Ephesus, which Paul started. Now, what that is doing is laying the foundation then for the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. If you remember that Jesus Christ after he resurrected, he appeared to John the Apostle, John the man who was going to pen the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation came from God. It was given to Jesus. Jesus delegated an angel. This is chapter 1 and verse 1 of Revelation. And then from there, it was uh, given to John to write down and we could receive it. John was also commanded to take special information from Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now remember, after Paul starts the church at about 50 AD, about 45 years later, the apostle John is pastoring the church in Ephesus. It's from the church in Ephesus that Domitian, who was the Roman emperor, would have put him under house arrest on the Isle of Patmos, which is an island about 45 miles off the Turkish coast or the coast of Asia Minor at that point in time. When the Lord appears to John, he gives him a directive. He said, I've got a message to the churches in Asia Minor. There are seven of them, and you pastor the church there in Ephesus. You've had a circuit writing ministry. Uh, you're saying, where are you getting this from? Well, I'm, it's not Jesus necessarily telling John that this is the case, but we do know he was the pastor at the church, and we do know he had a circuit writing ministry among all the other churches. He would spend time going around helping build up the church, helping build up the pastors of these church, helping make sure the doctrine is being taught correctly, etc. And so he is now given the assignment to get this message from Jesus, the last word to the church in essence, to 
the people in these seven churches. That brings us to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. So go over there with me and let me show you something. This is key in my opinion because of the fact, first of all, the ministry and the outreach of the apostle Paul and the church at Ephesus set this up, set up the building, the bringing together the salvation experience in these seven different locations in Asia Minor for the people who are going to come to know Christ and then be a part of these churches. Secondly, it's a very important message from Jesus Christ. It's the last words that Christ is going to give before he will come back out of the heavenlies. It's the last word that he is going to give to the church. And it being the last word that's going to come to the church, it should be very prioritized for us then to want to know exactly what he had to say. Now, as you look at these letters in the seven to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, I want you to notice, and I hope you're taking notes. Only godly, good-looking, sweet people like this young lady right here. She has her pen out. She has her notebook. She has her Bible open. Man, she is prepared for Sunday school. Now go thou and do likewise, if I can be spiritual. Take notes. It's always good to take notes. In fact, my wife, who's heard every message I've ever, ever preached a number of times, takes notes every, if you don't believe it, you can ask her. She'll show you she took notes. And the reason is I speak extemporaneously, which means I don't follow any notes myself. I speak just, you know, having studied all week, I get up and just open up and start speaking. And so every message I give, whether she's heard it a hundred times, is always different, <laughs> you know. And so she takes notes. She said, oh, wow, I just, I never heard that before. Well, she had, but she forgot it probably. That's another problem she has. But anyway, uh, you know, so she's taking notes. And it's good because you need to plant stuff on your brain. You know, how in the world do you think we're going to learn if we don't plant information? Do you know there's five ways you get information to your brain? Five gates to get it to your database. There's an eye gate, what you read, it goes through the eye gate. There's an ear gate, what you hear goes through the ear gate. There's a taste gate, what you eat. Have you ever picked up something and, man, you thought it was going to be a sweet, some type of uh, food, and you put it in your mouth and it's totally bitter, and you, ooh, that sends a message from your mouth to your brain. That's your test gate. And then there's your smell gate. Have you ever walked into a room and there's a staunch smell? Ooh, well, that sends a message to your brain. And then there's the touch gate. You see what I said? The eye gate, that's what you read. The ear gate, what you hear. The smell gate, what you smell. The test gate, what you taste. And the touch gate is how you take notes, and it sends information to the brain. Now, that's a, for a purpose to get you to know what you're going to have to teach later on. And there's looking at me so many people right now that are not taking notes. They're just looking at me. They must have photographic memories. I would suggest that is probably the case. I have a photographic memory. I just have difficulty developing it. But uh, you'll catch it if you just hang in there a moment. Uh, see, Pastor, I'm starting to follow your pattern. I can't quit it. I just keep going. But if you're taking notes, let me give you the three approaches to each of the letters of the seven churches. First, these letters, they're personal, they're practical, and then they're prophetic. As you look at every one of them, that's the pattern for all of the letters. There's a personal application to each of the letters that Jesus writes to the church. And he opens up with each of the letters unto the letter, unto the angel, for example, at the church at Ephesus. Write he, and then it gives a characteristic about Jesus Christ. That characteristic was basically laid out in chapter 1, which is giving us a personal uh, 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 description of the person, the resurrected, glorified, soon coming person of Jesus Christ. And so he does that, a personal application. Jesus Christ knows how to communicate. So he's personally presenting this application of himself to the body so that they may recognize who he is and what his authority is. And then there's going to be a, a, a practical exhortation. A practical, see I said it would be personal, practical, and prophetic. A practical exhortation. There's a common phrase that's used in all seven of the letters, 
that here's that common phrase, I know thy works. Boy, now that's an awesome statement if you really stop to think about it. I know thy works. And that's what he says to all seven churches. The reality is, if he's speaking to not only those churches in 95 AD, but the church today, he knows all of our works today. He knows exactly where we are, what we're doing, and who we're doing it with, and when we're doing it, and what it is we're doing. He knows the works of the church today, because these messages to the seven churches not only were for the churches in Asia Minor in 95 AD, when John wrote the book of Revelation, but in addition to that, they represent churches that are alive and well today. Now, I'm not necessarily saying the church of Thyatira is alive and well. I don't know of a church in Thyatira, and I've been there a number of times. Or maybe the church at Sardis. I don't know of a church in Sardis either. There are some of the places that the churches were operating in the time of Asia Minor and uh, John the Revelator, but they're not all operating today. Uh, But every single one of those churches and their description would fit a church. This church, for example, a Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas, it will have a portion or maybe two or three portions of the descriptions of the different churches that are characteristic of this particular church. And that's why, again, it's so practical to study these two chapters. And so you have a personal application, Jesus Christ presenting himself, uh, opening up a a way of communicating to the people, and then a practical exhortation after he relies upon them understanding who he is, what his character is, then he's going to exhort each of them about something they are doing or something they are not doing, and he begins that with saying, I know thy works. The third aspect of all of these letters would be a prophetic perspective. Remember how he concludes all of them? He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches, and he that is an overcomer. Well, that's the last part of each of the letters. He that hear, those are the people that he's communicating to, let them hear what the Spirit saith to the church. Pay attention, church. That's what he's saying. Pay attention to what I'm going to be giving you, what I'm communicating to you. And then he says, to him that overcometh. Now, that's not meaning that, well, I got saved and I just have not been able to overcome the devil, etc., etc. No, what it's meaning is if you're an overcomer, it's because you're a saved person. First John chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Who is he that is an overcomer? But he that knows Christ is Lord and Savior. So what he's saying then is, to him that overcometh, those people in the church, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. Then he gives a a prophetic perspective. For example, in one of the messages, he said that you're going to be able to sit with me on my throne and you'll reign with me. Now that's the church. That's not Jews and Gentiles. That's the church will be able to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And so we get those three characteristics. And when you start to do this study, and I hope you will take this to be a motivator for you to start to really dig into your study of chapters two and three. It's a fantastic, and Pastor may even consider doing it later. I don't think you've done it yet since you've been here. It's a fantastic study, the last words of Jesus Christ to the church. And I'm not going to be able to do good service to it because I've just got this short period of time. But I want you to know just an overview of these particular churches. Now, there are seven churches the letter is written to. Five of the seven churches Jesus Christ is going to condemn for something that they were doing wrong. Two of the churches he doesn't condemn, but he commends them for what they are doing right. And this is key to understand. The two churches he commends would be the church at Smyrna, which is the second church, and then the next to the last church, the church at Philadelphia, And these two churches, he does not condemn, he commends them for what they're doing. And we'll look at what they're doing in just a moment. Let me give you another characteristic that is true. He addresses these letters to the angels of the seven churches. 
The word in the Greek is angelos. It's never, as I understand it, and I've looked through the scriptures pretty well, it's never translated as pastor. So he's not writing to the pastors of the church, but instead either an angel, a literal angel, or a heavenly messenger that is involved in operating over that church. Uh, First Corinthians chapter 11 says there's angels in this building right now. There's angels in this room right now. Because every time you come together to study the word of God, angels come to learn. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, they say they want to learn their understanding of how God is, his characteristics. Remember, humans were created a little below the angel, and they don't understand. They have a free will, but they can only exercise it one time. One-third of them exercised their free will. They followed Satan, or Lucifer, in rebellion. Then he becomes Satan. And all angels had an opportunity to either follow Lucifer and rebel against God, or stay true to God. One-third of them, the Bible seems to indicate in the book of Revelation chapter 12, decided to go with Lucifer, so they rebelled. Now, because of that, the angels want to come and say, well, this is an amazing thing. Look at these people created a little bit lower than us, and look how the Lord treats them. I mean, you know, we all have a free will as well. We can exercise our free will. But we can change a decision if we exercise. For example, somebody might say, I don't want to receive Jesus Christ. It's my free will. I don't have to. But later on, they get under conviction and say, wait a minute. I do want to receive Jesus Christ. I understand now what it all means. So I want to receive him as my Lord and Savior. And I want to tell you, uh, the opportunity we have of exercising our free will can be done a number of times. Uh, You know, in other words, we can change our mind a number of times. I know that's the case. I've been married to one lady for 56 years. She changes her mind all the time, exercising her. So I know it's reality, and I know that's going to happen. But angels are here, and they want to learn. And so it is to the angels of the seven churches that these letters are addressed. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, unto the angel of the church at Smyrna, unto the angel of the church at Pergamon unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, unto the angel of the church at Sardis, unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia, unto the angel of the church at Laodicea. And so the message is coming through, and then he gives that personal application, some characteristic about him that he's passing along and reminding the church about. He's then going to come to the time when he's going to give a practical exhortation. And remember, I told you, common in all seven letters will be the phrase, I know thy works. Now, let's just look at the church at Ephesus. And I'm not going to be able to go in and really, uh, you know, give you the full meaning of the letter to the church. But let me give you a couple of high points. And when you go back to do your own personal study, maybe this will help you. The church at Ephesus was a loveless church. And that's what he talks about. I know thy works. I know what you do good. But let me tell you what you do bad. You left your first love. When you first fell in love with me, I know how you were, and you left that. I can remember when I first fell in love with my wife, Judy. I mean, I've been married to that one lady for 56 years. I was going with her for three years before we got married. And prior to getting married, I was in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force for three years, nine months, 27 days, 10 hours, 15 minutes, and 30 seconds. Loved every minute of that. And, uh, but, but I was away from Judy before I got married. I, you know, I, 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 and I was, I, I was wanting to be with her. When I was in the Air Force, they would uh, have what you would call mail call, mail call. And you know what they would do at mail call? They would get us all in line, and the sergeant would stand up, and he'd say, Airman Jones, and he'd give him his letters, Airman Smith, and Airman DeYoung. I'd run up and get that letter. Oh, I'd love getting a letter from Judy. You know why I love? Right on the back of it, there were two red lips. Mm-mm. And under that, it would say, swack, sealed with a kiss. 
And I would take that letter. Mm, oh, man, I love that letter. And she always squirted it with some perfume called Tonight or Never. And oh, man, that would melt me right on the spot. And I would take that letter and I'd rip it on, but I'd read those pages and I was melting into a pool of a puddle of water and I was just going crazy. I loved mail call. And then sometimes they would give a smoke break. Now, I don't smoke. I can't stand smoke. And I wanted to get away from that. So when the sergeant said, you can take a 10-minute smoke break, I would run over to the telephone. Now, the telephones are not, you know, like we have today. And I forgot. Oh, here's mine right here. They weren't like this. They were totally different. You know, they had a booth and you walk in there and you had to feed them nickels and dimes and stuff into it. I went over there and Man, I would call Miss Judy. Oh, I would call her. They'd have to clean that telephone booth out when I got finished. Slobber was all over the place. I want you to know the first month that I was in the Air Force away from Judy, that first month it cost me $900 in phone bills. Can you imagine how much it cost me for the year wanting to talk to that lady? Oh, I loved her and I wanted to talk to her and I wanted to read her love letter. Wait a minute. When I first fell in love with Jesus Christ, I love to read his love letter. I love to talk to him. How about you? How about you? Do you love to talk to him still? That's prayer. Do you love to read his love letter? That's reading the word of God. And the church at Ephesus, most influential church in Asia Minor, John the Revelator was the pastor. You know what Jesus said to them? I got someone against you. You're loveless. You left your first love. Didn't mean you lost it. You just walked away from it voluntarily. You know what he says? You better remember how it was when you first fell in love. You see, I was rehearsing how it was when I first fell in love with Jesus Christ. Oh, man, that was a precious time. I used to open the door for her. I used to, to the car, to the wherever building we're going in, I'd pull the chair out for. The other day we were running late for church. I was in the car. She was coming out of the motel where we were staying. I'm starting to drive away. The door's open. She's trying to get. I said, if you're going to the meet, get in the car, lady. We're hurrying up. We're lady. Left my first love, if you know what I'm talking about. Have you left your first love? You want to know what happens over there in the church at Ephesus? They left their first love. He said, remember how it was? Repeat those things that you were doing or I'll remove you. I'll remove you as a light. And the church at Ephesus was basically removed. Now, let me skip over the church at Smyrna because that's not a church that's condemned. I'll go to the church at Pergamos. Pergamos. He said, I know thy works. I know but I got somewhat against you. Look up here in chapter 2 and starting in verse 12, notice what it says. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. You know what that is? That's talking about Zeus, who is the father or the god of all the mythical gods of the Grecian people. And, and that there was a temple to Zeus there in Pergamos. They took the statue. The remains of the temple are still there. I stood there the other day. But that was the seed of Satan. Oh, you know what else happened? That mother-son cult. That mother-son cult that was established in Babylon. Uh, the Lord talks about it in Revelation chapter 17 in verse 5, where it says, Babylon, the mother of all harlots, the false church. That was there over in Pergamos. Uh, they came in there. You see, after the fall of the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C., that mother-son cult headquartered in Pergamos before it ever went to Rome. You can see the transgression. You can see what happened. You can see how all the uh, hierarchy of the church developed there in Pergamos. But I want you to notice something else. Look what he says here in verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now that was mentioned in the church at Ephesus. Go back over here uh, to verse 
Uh, let's look at here, verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, it's deeds there at the church at Ephesus. Over here to Pergamos, it's now become doctrine. You know what the doctrine or the deeds of the Nicolaitans is? Uh, let me tell you what it relates to. Do you remember when they chose the deacons to operate the church? The deacons were chosen uh, by those who were in charge of the church there in Jerusalem. It's chapter 6 of the book of Acts, and verse 5, they select the first group of deacons. Do you know there was one of them named Nicholas, a proselyte, the text says? Do you understand what that means? Nicholas was a pagan, a mystical God worshiper. What made him a proselyte was that he converted from paganism to Judaism. And then long comes the message of the gospel, and this pagan who was a proselyte became a Jew, now is going to become a Christian. And he's such an outstanding Christian, he was chosen among those men to be the deacons, the first deacons that would operate in the church in Jerusalem. Do you know the problem, though? Nicholas brought that pagan philosophy of worship and activity into Judaism with him, and then when he became a Christian, he brought it into the church. You know what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is? Allowing the church to use pagan ideas and philosophies to operate the church. God's word lays out how the church is to operate. We don't have to bring in the things of the world. I get so sick and tired of church leaders telling me, well, we got to be like them to win them. Now, what a stupid statement that is. We got to be like them to win them. What's the use of coming from what they have if we're just like them? No, we've got to provoke them to jealousy. If you ever read Romans chapter 11, why did he lead Gentiles to Jesus Christ? To provoke the Jews to jealousy. That's what we got. You see, this is the letter to the churches. He said, you bunch of Nicolaitans there in Pergamos. You're doing everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're in the seat of Satan. I know that. I already told you that. You don't have to have the things of the world in the church to win people to Jesus Christ. We've got uh, the pastor in his prayer. Did you hear what he said in his prayer talking about the power of the word of God? He was praying for me before I got, Lord, use the power of the word of God to teach our people. That's his philosophy. That's his idea of ministry. That should be our argument. And, and now look, please, l let me make sure you don't misunderstand me. I'm not attacking this church. I've only been here for four days. I don't know all the idiosyncrasies of these churches. Nobody's told me. Pastor did not. Only thing Pastor and Beth said to me when we spent the afternoon when we arrived is how much they love this church. Not a negative statement made. I, I, I tried to get some negative out of them. They wouldn't say it. They wouldn't do it. Glory to God. There's a good leader there and a precious wife with him. Yeah, go ahead and applaud him. So don't think that I'm attacking because I know something about what you're doing. I don't. I'm reading what Jesus said to the churches. You see, I can say just about everything I think the Word of God authorizes me to say. And I don't have to be concerned about somebody getting upset because it's the Word of God. It's from Jesus Christ. You Nicolaitans, you better wake up. Pergamus, I'm going to take your light away. You Nicolaitans, you need to be aware. You need to be understanding. I'm going to remove your light as a lighthouse. Candlestick, you remember Jesus walked among the seven candlesticks in chapter 1 and verse 12? Those are the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. The Nicolaitans, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And he said, repent. You can read through here. You'll see every single church except Smyrna and Philadelphia, the phrase repent or else.
And then we go to the church over here in chapter 2 still, in verse 18, the church of Thyatira. Now, may I just set your heart at ease? Ladies, please, ladies, listen to me. I am not appointing this message to any lady in this room. I want you to know I do not know anything that's going on in this church. I'm simply teaching what Jesus said to the church at Thyatira. And I want you to understand that, so don't you dare go out of here, oh, Dr. DeYoung, he zeroed right in on me, and he was preaching to me this morning. I hope I'm preaching to all of you, but, he, you know, I do not know anything about any one of the ladies in this room. But let me tell you what the problem was. You see, the church in Ephesus was loveless. The church in Pergamos was lax. They, had that lack of, they were lacking what God had told them to do. They started following the ways of the world. Now, the church over there in Thyatira, and I've been to Thyatira, church in Thyatira were liberal. Liberal. You know what liberal? I looked it up in the dictionary last night so I'd make certain I understood what it was saying. Liberal. Moving away from that which is absolute tradition or principle to something contradictory. Liberal. You know what was going on at the church there in Thyatira? Oh, Jezebel showed up. Jezebel. Not the Jezebel of the Old Testament. She was wiped out. Don't you remember Jezebel who lived over in Jezreel? Yeah, she was thrown down and, and uh, trampled to death, and the dogs came to it, lick her up, you know, the remains of Jezebel. So it's not that Jezebel, but it's somebody who represented Jezebel back over there in the book of 1 Kings. Jezebel. And you know what he calls her? A prophetess. And she starts to teach and she starts to usurp authority over men. You say, what are you, a male chauvinist pig, Dr. DeYoung? No, I'm not a male chauvinist pig. I love one woman dearly. And then she's a representative all of womanhood, and I love women. I honor them. They are precious in God's eyes. They are special. Do you want to know something? Have you ever studied the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what happens after that? If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it says the husband is going to love his wife, cherish his wife, honor his wife. That's a spirit-filled man. Oh, you know what happens to a spirit-filled woman? She's obedient to her husband. Because obedience doesn't mean, well, I'm going to be a slave to this man for the rest of my life. No, obedience means I believe the one above him is stronger than he is, and he'll take care of me. You see, it also says in that passage, yes, Jesus is over the husband. And the wife is to be obedient to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in your heart richly. And the same results come about. I was reading that the other day, and I noticed something. It tells husbands to love their wives, but it never tells the wife to love their husbands. That's amazing. Just be obedient. You don't even have to love them. I mean, you know what it says? I guess they do love him. Probably I made a mistake because Jesus said, love your enemy. And so possibly we're supposed to love them, girls. Just relax. That's what the word says. But that's not what's going on in the church in Thyatira. Oh, Jezebel shows up and she starts teaching and she starts usurping authority. You know what happened? The problem is that the church of Thyatira never read what Timothy had to say. First Timothy chapter 2, have you ever read that? Women, be silent in the church. Be subject unto the man. Oh, and do not usurp authority over him. Now, listen, that does not mean that a woman, listen to me, that a woman can't teach children, can teach women. But when it comes to women starting to teach men, I don't believe that's a directive of the Word of God. Now, you can argue with me all day, but you better bring your Bible because we're going to look and see what it has to say. I'm just going to be a biblist in everything I say. 
And I do believe that a woman can teach women in the church, but they had better be under the authority of the pastor and the leadership of that church. Because I've seen more problems in local churches when they would go out, the women, and start their own little church within a church. You can't do that. God sets up leadership for a church. And I'm not only talking about women teaching in their local church, and that's permissible. I'm talking about all the women teachers in the television world and in the conference world. How about them? I know one of them stood up the other day at the Southern Baptist Convention, and here's what she said. You don't need a pastor. I'm your pastor. And if I named her, boy, you would have recognized that name. She's part of the charismatic movement she met the other day with another one. And maybe I can mention this one, Joyce Myers, who is off the wall, charismatic. She is so bad, it's unbelievable. And this woman that I'm talking about who said, you don't need a pastor, I'm your pastor, went over and honored Joyce Myers. She said, the only thing I can think about saying is affirming your ministry and how great you are. And, And they're perverting scripture. And we got all these women falling in line, forgetting what the past. This man's the leader. This man is the guy, guy the, what the Lord sent here to teach the Word of God. He's the authority from the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes, and that's why you better bring your Bible with you all the time. Make sure he's right on target. Same thing with me. You know, both of us can make mistakes. We're human. But I want to tell you, may I say you something about this pastor and this evangelist? We got two precious examples of what the wife ought to be in a church. A lady with the gift of service. My dear precious wife, Judy, with the gift of mercy. That's what this man, who's an exhorter of the word of God, this man who has the gift of prophet, not foretelling the future, but forthtelling it, has as his side. You want examples, ladies? There's one, my precious Judy. You see, the problem in the church there at Thyatira, Jezebel showed up, a teacher. Women can teach under the leadership of the local church. And what did the Lord say? You're liberal. Can't be liberal. That's going to shut down the advancement of the gospel. Oh, let's look at the church at Sardis. If you've never been over to Turkey, Sardis is one of the most beautiful locations in all of Turkey. It's up in the mountains. The vegetation is so beautiful. It's magnificent. It's just a marvelous location, and I would recommend it. In fact, we're going to Turkey this coming fall. We'd love to have you come go with us. Judy has some information. But look at the church at Sardis here. Chapter 3, verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. See, that's that personal application. And then uh, thou hast a name that thou livest, but thou art dead. There's the practical exhortation. You've got a name. You're a church. Hey, we've heard about Calvary Bible in Nassau, Bahamas. They're known all over the world, and that is true. That is a true statement. You're known all over the world. I've got to tell you that. That gives you a responsibility. The church at Sardis was dead. Dead. They were lifeless. Church at Ephesus, loveless. Church at Pergamos, lax. Church at Thyatira, liberal. Church at Pergamos, lifeless, dead. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, hey, listen to me. Listen to me. In the last days, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days there will be those who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. How about it, church? How about it? You see, I don't know anything about the church. I'm not attacking. But look, if something comes along in his word and it's a part of the letter that Jesus sends to the church and you think it's applicable, put it on and wear it. It'll be good. It'll only help. All right? Don't be lifeless. 
Don't have a form of godliness, denying the power thereof. Uh, That's the problem. You know what else Paul said? There'll be men who love pleasure more than God. There's the church at Sardis. How do you think you get away and become a dead church? By By being one who denies the power thereof, the power, having a form, looking like a church, but not having the power, and then loving pleasure and loving what man says instead of God. You know, it's pretty tough here on the island. I mean, this is not an easy place to live. I have to recognize that, my friend. This is a tough place to live. I mean, you can't walk down the sidewalk without, you gotta, if you're a man who wants to be a spiritual man, you've got to walk with blinders. In fact, I'm thinking about getting a C&I dog so I don't have to even open my eyes. That's the only way I think I'm going to overcome this situation over here. And especially on Paradise Island. Pastor says, hey, how, how was your day in Paradise? Pretty tough, man, pretty tough. It was not easy. I mean, I get up as early as I can and walk where nobody else is, but I still there. They're all over the place. You know what I'm talking about. And you need to, I understand that. But you know what's going to shut down? This is the 44th mission conference you've had. You know what's going to shut it down? Lifelessness. Having a form of godliness. Denying the power thereof. I hope and pray that your budget has not been going down. You said, Dr. DeYoung, do you know the economy and the economic situation here on the island of Nassau? Yeah, I think I do. Because I come from the United States where it's even worse. All right? I know the economic situation. I don't care. And in fact, that's the way most people vote today. Economics. They don't vote principle. They vote economics. You know, my Bible still says, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus the Lord. I've got to commend this man once again. Do you understand what he taught you last Sunday? He wants you not only to use faith promise in your missions giving, but for all the giving of the church. Man, that's a fantastic, it's a principle in the New Testament for sure. And don't say, well, I thought we were supposed to give 10%. No, that's the recommended beginning point. That's only the beginning. You go higher than that. And you know what? I can guarantee you're not going to outgive God. You can't beat him. You can't do more than he does. And you ought to be giving. I don't care what the economics. Just don't think about that. God's going to supply all of our needs. That's what we need to be concerned about. Are we walking with him? A lifeless church. Now let me slip over and I'll slip over Philadelphia. I'm coming back to him. But let's go to Laodicea. You know what everybody tells me and all these prophecy teachers stand up and say, well, we're living in the age of Laodicea. Now, that's kind of a dumb statement also because they have no idea what the message to the church at Laodicea was talking about. They say this is the last church that's going to be on the earth before Jesus Christ comes back. Well, I I wouldn't say that is correct. In fact, there's not only a church age called Laodicea. All the churches down through the last 2,000 years have been churches from Laodicea. Laodicea, when I first went there, Uh, Way back in the 90s, there were three pillars standing up in the field there in Laodicea. That was all the archaeological remain. Uh, Three pillars. And we did a little television program from there. Last time I went in there, there were 25 acres. 25, if you call it an acre, 25 acres of unbelievable archaeological remain. It's become a showplace for the Turkish Tourism Department. It's amazing. Laodicea was a thriving city. It was down the hill from Colossae. On the way between Philadelphia and Laodicea, you come through Heropolis, and in Heropolis, if you keep going, you'll come and a sign says going up to Colossae. And up at the top of the mountain peak there in Colossae, I mean, do you, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, uh, The Sound of Music, if you've ever seen that. And you remember that last scene when the Van Tropp family are walking across the Alps? That's what it looks like at Colossae. 
I got up there and I was looking across the mountains and I started singing the sound of music. You didn't want to hear that, but I mean, I was just full voice at that point. It was beautiful. Now, I noticed two things. Heropolis, Heropolis between Philadelphia and Laodicea is a hot spring, a mineral water coming up out of the ground. When it dries, it looks like snow. You come around the corner, it looks like the whole side of the mountain is it already snowed. It may be July. It, it's unbelievable. It's the dried salt. But as I were coming through Heropolis, I saw something in the field with my television crew, and I said, let's go see what that is. You know what it was? The remains of an aqueduct. And so I asked the guide with me, I said, why is there an aqueduct here just outside of Heropolis? They said, oh, when Laodicea was a thriving city, they used to take the hot water out of the mineral springs, put it in the aqueduct, and transfer that water down to Laodicea. I said, now that was a smart idea. And then we go over and we turn up, we go up to Colossae. And as we see the mountain peaks up there, there's still snow in July. And the melting waters, the freezing cold water would come down off of those mountains. And as we were coming out of Colossae, you know what I saw? I saw another aqueduct, which uh, transports water. I said, what's this aqueduct for? Oh, the cold melting snow waters. They put them in this aqueduct and they send it down to Laodicea. You see the hot water from Heropolis going into Laodicea, the cold water coming out of Colossae going into Laodicea. They said there's one problem in Laodicea every time the cold water gets down and the hot water gets over there. It's lukewarm. How about that? Jesus using his surrounding to teach a message. Hey, listen. Here's what's wrong with you people in Laodicea. You are lukewarm. But you notice what we forget to say? Have you got chapter 3? Look over here, chapter 3 of the book of Revelation, chapter 3. I want you to notice what he says right here. So that because thou, look here, it's in verse 16. So that because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He said, I would rather, go back up here to to verse, uh, end of verse 14. I would rather that thou would be cold or hot. You understand what that means? Listen to me. Cold is refreshing. On a hot day, cold drink of water. Even a cold shower, it's refreshing. Cold, there's nothing wrong with being cold. How about hot? It's cleansing. And so Jesus said, I would rather you be cold or hot. In fact, I want you to be cold, refreshing, hot, cleansing, but don't be lukewarm because I'll spew you out of my mouth. Do you understand what he says to the church at Laodicea? You're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. You're not, you're not taking a stand. You're not refreshing people with the gospel message. You're not cleansing people's lives. And I said before, I think it was last night, we can dress them up, we can make them as fat as they want to be. We can feed them everything they need to have. And then you got a fat, well-dressed person going directly to hell. Now, what are you accomplishing? I do believe we need to help people who are in need. That's the church's responsibility. It's not government's responsibility. It's the church's responsibility. But that's not the number one priority. Coming to know Christ in that person's life is number one for us in our ministry. Leading them to Jesus Christ. There's no higher priority than leading somebody to Christ. And then after we do that, we dress them up. We feed them. And and that's what we do at our church in Jerusalem. After the church service on Saturday, we meet on Saturday because everybody works on Sunday. What's the use of holding a church service on Sunday if nobody's coming? So we have a Saturday. It's not because we follow the Sabbath. We just, that's the day that we can meet, okay? And after that, we have a meal for everybody that doesn't have a capability of having a meal or having fellowship or helping them grow in the Lord. Do you notice what they did in Acts chapter 2? That's what they did. But what happened before that? They'd led 3,000 people to the Lord. The priority. And that's what he's saying. Don't be lukewarm. You see, church at Ephesus, loveless. Church at Pergamos, lax. Church at Thyatira, 
liberal. Church at Sardis, lifeless. Church at Ephesus, I'm sorry, at Laodicea, lukewarm. Now let's look at two other churches and we'll be out of here. My time as right now, according to my clock, is 10.26. I'm going to quit at 10.30 on the dot mark it down. You can head to the bathroom at 10.30. All right. Let me show you the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna, verse 8. And unto the angel of the church at Smyrna, write these things. And then he says, I know thy works, in verse 9, in the tribulation and the poverty, but thou art rich. Do you understand what I just said? They're facing tribulation. Now listen, they're facing poverty. Hello, economic situation in Nassau. Quit complaining about it. Rejoice in Jesus who's supplying our needs. And move ahead and keep giving, faith giving. And seeing God work, it's amazing. That's what I love about faith promises. You're watching God at work in your life. It's it's just wonderful to watch. It's It's a tangible experience. I'm not into experiences, but it's a tangible experience. I bless the pastor again for setting that goal for the church. It's it's terrific. But the church of Smyrna, well, they've been living through tribulation. Now, not the tribulation, but tough times, poverty-stricken. Do you know one of the early church leaders in Smyrna? It's Izmir today in Turkey. You know what his name was? Polycarp. Polycarp. You ever hear of Polycarp? He stood at a stake. He wouldn't deny Jesus Christ. They built up a fire around him and they burned him to death. You know what he said as he was burning to death? I regret one thing, that I've only got one life to give to be burned to death. That's the church at Smyrna. That was a long-suffering church. That's a pattern we should be following. Long-suffering. Now look at the church at Philadelphia, and this is my favorite. I love the church at Philadelphia. Go down here. It starts in verse 7 of chapter 3, but look at verse 8. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set thee before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Now let me give you a three-part message. If you want to preach a message, here's a three-part from that verse. We, the minority, notice what he says, you're of little strength in Philadelphia. We, the minority, and then he said, I've opened the door, can reach the majority because you've not denied my word and my name because we stand on the authority. How about that? You get a poem, you got a message to go out preach someplace. Three points in a poem, right, Pastor? Exactly. All right. We, the minority, though we have little strength, because we stand on the authority of the Word of God, can reach the majority. It's an open door that no man can shut down. No man can shut it down. Are, are you? And remember, though I believe when it says in Acts chapter 1, start in Jerusalem. It's talking about the literal city of Jerusalem. That's I believe it. That's it. That's what the Word of God says. But I believe a spiritual application is starting in your Jerusalem, and that's where you live. How about it? How's your mission work going here at home? Well, Dr. DeYoung, we got somebody at the Learning Center that's taking care of that. Oh, and we got uh, Pastor Joseph who's taking care. Uh, he's got the Haitian people, and we're not going to go over there and dirty ourselves with that. He, he's taking care of that. Oh, and we got Eunice and, and uh, Eddie Pender, and they're going to go out to the islands. We don't have to do all that junk. I couldn't go out there and do that. We got them here. We'll give them a couple of bucks if we think about it, and we'll let them do that. Uh-uh. No. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 says we all are given the ministry of reconciliation. You know what that means? We are to reconcile lost man to Jesus Christ. All of, we don't have to pray about that. 
You know, there's a bunch of stupid prayers that we offer up, and one of them is, Lord, do I need to try to win people to Jesus Christ? A stupid prayer. Yes, you need to do that. When you're walking out of the grocery store the other day, did you give a track? Did you give a track to the lady or whoever was at the counter, the cash register? How about when you went to the restaurant and how about that sweet waitress? That sweet waitress that took care of you. Did you give her a track? Did you tell her about Jesus? Did you give a word of testimony? What about your next door neighbor? Is it pretty difficult to witness to them because they watch your life? I don't know. I don't know anybody's life. I'm asking you a question. We, the minority, because we stand on the authority of this book, can reach the majority. Pretty good message that old Jesus gave to the church, wasn't it? And I just barely touched the hem of the garment. There's so much more meat in there for you to study. I hope and pray that you will get excited. And I'm a liar. I'm a liar. It's now 1032. I skipped it. And only one guy got up to go to the bathroom. Okay. Let me have a word of prayer and we'll take a break. Father, thank you for this time with this awesome book helping us to recognize what Paul did while in Ephesus and how as he built that church, they spread out to give the gospel message out. And they reached out to everybody in Asia Minor. Not all of them got saved, but some did. And it set a foundation for the seven churches that are talked about that the message Jesus sent to them in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3. And then the exhortation the practical exhortation from those messages. It's precious. Let us apply your word to our daily lives as we await your shout, Lord, to join you at the rapture. Bless these dear people. Bless this church. Bless their outreach ministry. Bless the leadership. Use it for your glory. Thy precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.